Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. Today, I have my good friend, Tim Roberts, who is the David H. Sandler Award winner for 2018-19 and a longstanding franchisee. He's had a massive influence on me in my career and also in my Sandler practice, and I'm delighted to have him here today. He's the franchisee from Indiana, from Indianapolis. And Tim, would you mind giving a quick one-minute introduction to who you are and a little bit about your background? Um, Yeah, thanks. First of all, Marcus, you know it is my privilege and honor to spend time with you today. Um, I am, um, I'm not much more than a a Sandler guy, but I have found great honor in being a salesperson. A time in my life um, that I, I used to tell people, I want nothing to do with sales. I dream of buyers going down in fiery plane crashes. In my mind, it wasn't who I was supposed to be. And one day I thought, how do I reframe this? How do I look at it with a different set of lenses? What if instead of bad-mouthing the profession and blaming everybody else, making excuses, lip service, how can I see it differently? And I had a couple challenging moments that allowed me to see it different. And then I remember thinking, why don't, and this is going to sound a little odd, a little corny, but I thought, wait a minute, why don't I become the defender of salespeople? Why don't I actually work on my craft, view it with honor, integrity, and a high level of ethics And when I made that commitment, all things changed. And then the phrase, all things are possible, came to light. It's been quite a fun journey for me. Excellent. Well, I remember about 10 years ago, you did a fantastic talk at the Sandler Conference entitled Statuary Hall. And what you really gave to me at that point was the realization that sales was a force for good. And I know that there's an interesting backstory, a defining moment to how that came about. Do you mind sharing that? Thanks. I was a, uh, my, my dream as a little boy was, I want to be the president of the United States. And of course, I've reshifted that thinking now. But I remember at a very young age, I was a legislative assistant for a congressman in Washington, D.C. And I'll never forget the first time I'm from Indianapolis, Indiana, here in the Midwest. I had actually never been to Washington before. And um, after we won a re-election, the congressman said, Tim, I want you to come work in Washington, D.C. for me. And it was really a dream come true. I was about 24 years old, and I got off the plane in D.C. He told me like on a Friday, and he said he wanted me there on Monday. And so I just packed up what belongings I had, uh, said goodbye to friends and family, and I flew to Washington. I remember walking through the airport, and I remember when I got, I went straight to Capitol Hill. And when I got to Capitol Hill, I went in with all the other tourists, and there was a place that I had heard of before but never been in, and it was called Statuary Hall. And in Statuary Hall, there's two statues representing all 50 states here in the U.S. And I remember staring at those imposing figures. Who are these men? Who are these women? Well, of course, 
growing up in grade school, I learned a history, but I was staring at these massive statues and wondering what honor, what value, what they brought to the table with such conviction and commitment. Marcus, I, I'm not kidding. I remember standing there like a number of other tourists with like a tear in my eye going, this represents the best of all things. I remember thinking they are the builders and keepers of our brand, our way of life. And then that moment I started thinking, what makes an honorable contributor? What is the stuff, the DNA of what they're made on me? When I decided to take the step into the world of Sandler, when I left the Capitol, when I decided that this is what I would do, I remember thinking, I'll do Sandler. I'll be a salesperson on one condition, honor. And I've never tried to lose sight of that. That's fantastic. I do seem to recall that you hassled Mick Jagger uh, <laughs> on your way over as well. But that's another tale. Um, yeah. So tell me, no plan B. What does that mean? And when you make a decision to start your own business, and I truly, I did not know much about Sandler. Truth be told, I was actually a, a rather mediocre salesperson. And, and yet, I recall going to my wife. I recall asking her and saying, I'm thinking about looking at this differently. And I'm going to get into, I'm thinking about buying this franchise, this thing called sales training. Of course, she quizzed me you know, why sales training, why all this, you don't even like sales and all those kind of things. And as we talked through it and I worked work through it, I, I remember thinking and planning, sort of like a negotiation planning, that Katie would push back, that she would not like it, that all these things. And my bride looked at me and said, I believe that you can do anything. I'm behind you. You can do this. But then she looked at me and said, no plan B. And I was sort of caught off guard. I didn't did think this would be a reaction, but what did no plan B? And she looked at me again and said with some force, I said, no plan B. And then she toughened it up and she said, what do you call this at Sandler? An upfront contract? Well, here is the upfront contract. And Marcus, at the moment, I don't even know if I could spell UFC let alone hire and deploy it. Uh, she said, read my lips. No mutual mystification. No plan B. And that was taken off the table. So it has to work. And that was a critical piece of the whole thing. Very interesting. So tell me this. I mean, you and Katie have been together for decades now. And you've built a fantastic life together. How important is it for you as the leader of your business to have that support and to have so much intrinsic value or shared values with Katie? Well, thanks for um, introducing the phrase values. Both of us, and I suppose if you go back in time 34 years ago, it's why you enter holy matrimony. You have to have shared values. And where we did not have shared values we thought in terms of value creation. As it related to our business, the phrase, 
that I've used so much. I have the best job in the state of Indiana. I get to bring value to people's lives every day of the week. And those, that phrase is sacred to me. I do not take it lightly. But, but Katie was a part of that. What do we value as business owners? What do we value as salespeople? How do we learn to listen to others? Katie challenged me with this too. How do we value what other people consider sacred first? All Sandler trainers really are attuned to the idea of it's not about us, it's about them. It's not about our features and benefits. It's about what they value. And Katie challenged me to think about what they're saying to value it as sacred. What's our rule in training, Marcus? When people don't argue with their own data, that's sort of rule number one in training. But that's just not a trainer's statement. It's a guiding principle. As we named our franchise Trust Point, we took that word sacred too. We had the place of value on the word trust. And, and let me challenge the listeners with this because I do it every day of the week. No one knows how trust works. No one knows what the word rapport means. As humans, we seem to value rapport and relationships and connections, and we value trustworthy discussions. So I often look at people and say, well, cool, what does rapport mean? And you will see that they do not have clarity. And when I say, how does trust work? You value it. And I love that good brother. But how does trust work? Those were values that we built upon early. Thank you for that. The French word rapporté means to offer or reflect back. And that whole piece about getting somebody to feel understood, be heard, feel felt, that's the, the objective of rapport but I suspect it means something different to everybody. Certainly trust will mean different things to different people. But ultimately, Mark Goulston, I don't know if you've come across him. Yes. Mark came up with that line about everybody wants to feel felt, be heard, and be understood. And I think that's really important, certainly being a guiding principle in all of my training, my selling, and life since I came across it. Because what it forced me to do was to pay attention and a friend of mine from 14, 15 years ago, a guy called uh, Ron Verpereis, he's a, a Dutchman who does all sorts of weird and wacky stuff. And he said, attention is a currency. You pay attention. And I think too often in sales, people are fixated on their own stuff. They're, they're interested in their own agenda. They don't pay attention. What they do is they pay lip service to it. And as a result, the prospect, the buyer, the customer, whoever, doesn't feel valued. And again, these things seem to come back round time and again. They're, they're guiding principles of the greatest among us. And in fact, Stephen Covey once told me when I asked him a very mediocre question, and he came back with this line, and this was another defining moment. The greatest among us serve the most. And that whole piece around service is really key. Because I think people confuse service with servitude. So do you mind giving your thoughts around the whole concept of service and contribution? You are eloquent. I always love our conversations, my thoughtful friend. 
I would love to. Uh, as you were talking, I couldn't help but think the the easiest, the cognitive bias that we all have, the path of least resistance is often to go back to self. When I thought of that word rapport, a French word rapport, and that it means give back or offer back, I knew I wasn't good at doing that. How do you give the other person back? And and that's what led me, as you know, that part of my background is gestalt therapy. And the role of the gestaltist in my mind is I've said a lot. I'm not in the sales training business. I'm in the mental intervention business. I'm here to serve what they may be looking for. And to understand the word present, present, how you be there for someone else. Can I give you a a very quick true confession? You know, we use an instrument called the divine core inventory when we do assessments, when we look at teams. I view the divine core as a MRI. Tools like this might be an x-ray. And if you look at my original divine core, Marcus, don't laugh at me. I'll get on a plane and come over there. As I looked at mine, my listening score was zero. Okay, well, that was rather alarming. Down to one. You must have tried really hard. (laughs) Yes, well, no. If I go back in time and think of the number of times my mother said, Tim, hold still and listen to me. You're not listening. I got it. So I called Dr. David Devine and I said, Dr. Devine, my standard line is what makes me a great trusted advisor is that I can hear every word, syllable, and consonant better than anyone else. I can be present for other humans. And of course, um, and I said, if they see this zero in listening, I'm a poser. And he said, well, in your case, what it means is you want people to listen to you. And if you go back and understand my history in childhood, I was frustrated with an older brother and sister who were rock stars and everyone paid attention to them. But that was alarming. I was not being present for others. It was the greatest gift, the greatest service that someone could have given me. I could have fought it and said, this was wrong, this assessment's wrong, or I could embrace it as the gift. And I thought, if I'm going to bring value to others' lives, if I'm going to be, have a servant mentality, and I like your point, not a servitude mentality, then I really have to be present for people. And so how do you learn that skill of giving back or offering back and being present? To this day, um, I've conducted a little over, as of yesterday, 2,158 one-on-one two-hour interviews with either candidates for my programs or candidates for my clients. Marcus, can I tell you, I am drained at the end of every one of those because the fact of the matter is, the truth is, listening wasn't native. I'm very joyful that I have to work at it. That, for me, is how I bring value and honor value in others. For me, that is how I bring service and being a servant leader to others. That's mine. Each person will view servant leader or service differently. For me, be present and listen to what they say as sacred. I work at it. I'm glad I've been forced to work at it. Thank you, Divine, for the zero. Now, shh, don't tell anybody, please. We promise. (laughs) So what's your score now? (laughs) I'm knocking it out, brother. It's a two. (laughs) 
<laughs> when I grow up, I'll be a real boy. <laughs> so who are your role models growing up? I became political young because I was deeply motivated by Robert Francis Kennedy, RFK here in the States. And it was because for me, he was wrapped in the word justice. If you were looking at my office now, I have a picture of four men right now. I have the next, the women in mind that will go up. These were the covers of the Time magazine. It's Walter Cronkite, Trust. It's Robert Kennedy, Justice. It's Bob Hope, Humor and Hope. And it's Bruce Springsteen, Music and Soul. Well, Robert Kennedy was the first one up there because of justice. And so part of my own core value system has always been tethered to the word justice. What is the right thing for the planet Earth, for our brothers and sisters? And for us, especially salespeople. That then brings me to who your role models are today. Well, for me, top of mind, there are people in our own network. That talk I gave that day 10 years ago about Statuary Hall, there were people in the room I wanted to honor that are role models for me. And they are men and women in our own network. Men like Bill Bartlett. Bill Bartlett in many ways impacted and changed me forever. The wit and ease of a guy like John Rosso, as you, they changed me in a meaningful way. They opened my eyes to new experience. Fantastic. Okay, so let's talk about consistency. One of the things that I learned about values is values don't change. No matter what's thrown at you, those values stay true. And behaving consistently Living those values consistently is key. What were the challenges that you faced that caused you to question your values, to waver? And how did you get back on track? Um, Boy, that's a good question, a tough question. It's a thoughtful question. I think everybody should entertain it. One of the things that challenged me early on, and it will probably be a part of me forever, was a high need for approval. You know, we often talk about HNA. And that would not allow me, my need for approval would not allow me to ask tough questions, to weigh in, to play the role of doctor. Often a challenge that salespeople face is the buyer jumps in at some point and says, what's this going to cost me? Well, I'm a firm believer that how do you take a conversation from what's this going to cost me to can you help me? Now, listen to the tonality of those two things. One of them is not connection. One of them is connection. Can you help me makes price go away? The only way I could get there is if I played the role of the good doctor. But that meant I had to get rid of my need for approval. Every day of the week, I have to look at a president or a CEO or a VP of sales and say something to this effect. Gosh, I don't know. You might be the problem. Can we talk about that? And that was a question mommy on my shoulder would always say, you be a good boy, Timmy Roberts. Don't you accuse? Well, I'm not accusing. I would be remiss in my responsibility to bring value if I did not challenge others. It's the right and it's the honorable thing to do. And it's also value creation. And you know what I learned along the way? 
people would invariably, virtually 100% of the time, they would move in their chair. Oh, and I recognize that micro expression. It's actually a macro. And then they would say, I think you're right. I think it is me. (laughs) Well, okay, now we have vulnerability going on. So I had to learn to be consistent with that. So vulnerability became a big part of my process. Have you come across Patrick Lencioni? Oh, absolutely. Death of a Salesman, other great books. Absolutely. And he, he talks about telling people the kind truth. I think one of the guiding principles, or the guiding principle in Sandler is nurture, nurture, nurture. And I think sometimes people forget, often people forget, and they tend to use Sandler as a weapon. They use it to be right. And that, I believe, is 180 degrees from the values and principles that Sandler taught us. It's all about taking care of the other person's identity, protecting them. It doesn't mean you can't be tough. And one of the things that's really made a big difference to my life, my work, my sales, my career, is the understanding of something called the winner's triangle, where instead of the drama triangle of victim, persecutor, rescuer, you operate from vulnerable, nurturing and empathic and assertive. And the position of assertive vulnerability is incredibly strong. It's the adult and the natural child supported by the nurturing parent. And it allows you to tell people the truth with permission and with the correct intent. And what I see happen time and time again is people approach the sale with the wrong intent. They are there to sell to do something selfish. They're not there to establish if there is a mutual fit, if there is a win-win. And I'm really curious to explore this whole concept of vulnerability further, because in my experience, a lot of people have a high need for approval, but they also fear being wrong, being punished. As a leader, as a manager, how does one employ vulnerability in order to help the people that you serve, in order to help them be more open, be more honest, live by their values. There's an intellectual way of saying that, and there's a straightforward way of saying it. Um, One of them, the the rough way, is get rid of you. And then the, the right way is to say, lose self subordinate your ego to the service of others. And I steal that out of a legendary book, Trusted Advisor. One of the things that's critical to me, I think of three T's, trust, transparency, and truth. We know one rule, no one, no one on earth likes to be sold. That's a fact, there you go. You don't have to sell anymore. And I tell people all the time, I will not teach you how to sell. I'm only going to teach you how to find the truth. And the truth is they either need you, your organization, your products and services, or they don't. So if you're going to find the truth, that means the other side has to be transparent. If they're going to be transparent, how do you create vulnerability? And that comes back to your point of nurture, nurture, nurture. David Sandler said, sell 70% with your nurturing parent ego state. 30% with your adults. And so in our pain funnel, how do you create transparency? 
How do you align that vulnerability so they move from price to can you help me? Vulnerability becomes critical, but it begins with transparency. But transparency begins with do they trust you? What are the skills you use in the pain funnel to create that? So for me, I'm always thinking of my nurturing parent ego state, but I'm also thinking about I'm going to use my child a little bit. It begins with my upfront contract, and it sounds like this. Marcus, in our meeting today, please, I want you to know something. This is a judgment-free zone. I will not judge you for any reason. I'm going to be very deliberate about listening for your strengths. Your weaknesses were left out for a reason, and they will jump out like a cartoon character. I'm not going to go there. Please, no judging. Let's just talk to each other. That is an honorable approach, but it also aids in them dropping their barriers. He's not here to sell me. And I don't care about that. And that's why in our upfront contract, we push for a no. It's critical that you say no. Under no illusion, we're doing business. Two business people having a conversation. So one must set the stage for vulnerability, transparency. It's the only way you'll get the truth. They're guarded. You will not get the truth. You're going to get blindsided down the road. I was taught about 10, 12 years ago that for other people to be vulnerable, you have to be vulnerable first. And that was a very useful guiding principle as well. And it's also incredibly liberating. One of the things that really struck me was being able to tell people about my failures, about the mistakes I'd made, the decisions I regretted. And as I look back over my career, I've probably left well over 100 to 150 million pounds on the table. And I often lead with that. And my question is, why would you sit here and listen to someone who's left so much money behind talk to you about how to make money, how to be successful? And it's a really interesting principle that when you drop your guard, then other people will start to open up and drop their guard too. What I've noticed with you is that it's very easy to trust you because you are vulnerable. There's no artifice, there's no arrogance, and you have left self behind. And it's a pleasure. I can see you blushing a little bit, which is another good indication. There you go. That's really good red for those of you listening. Tim's gone bright red, doesn't like this attention, but he deserves it. He's a fantastic human being. Okay, so tell me about accountability. My view on accountability is it is an internal force, much like motivation is. You can't hold someone accountable. You can only hold yourself accountable. You can have people reporting. You can have targets and hold people's feet to the fire. But ultimately, accountability comes from within. Talk to me about your views around accountability. I will come back to my uh, wonderful bride, Katie, again. There, of course, is my accountability partner. Uh, Not only just uh, uh, no plan B, but she has a couple of other mechanisms. One of the things that I've laughed in a part of the vulnerability conversation was um, early on training Sandler, uh, as I trained and I would train with eloquence, with force, with challenge. 
And it was nice to hear people say, what a fine trainer you are. But Marcus, I would walk away and go, my gosh, though, I'm a poser. I am not really doing everything that I talk about. I'm not living up to what I do. And then that, I mean, it was hard for me to get wrapped around it. And so it began with an eternal accountability piece. I'm not allowed to stand here. Tim Roberts, when are you not going to be a poser anymore? And so it raised the bar of accountability in a big way. Say what you do and do what you say. And so that became just built in. And then a little tiny accountability piece from Katie was wrapped around what happens at the end of the meeting. My earliest accountability thing came at the end of the meeting. Katie would always insist that I give her one thing. What day and what time would I get my no or yes if I didn't close it in that meeting? And she was headstrong about it. And to this day, 21 years later in our Sandler business, I will walk by the office after a meeting and Katie will go, what time? (laughs) Yeah, walk over. What time? And that just means I want to know to the minute they're going to call you back because I don't chase. I asked them to call me back with my no or my yes. And she just wants to know the day and the time. It's her way of pipeline forecasting or whatever. But it's held me accountable to the system. One simple thing. What time do you get your no? And when I say Friday at nine, you can bet she's hovering around the phone. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Let's talk about contribution. I see... Giants like Bill Bartlett, yourself, John Rosso, making a massive contribution to our network. And it goes above and beyond just doing it because people ask. There's a real fire in how you guys want to support the people around you. And I know John Rosso had a mission many years ago, which was that he wanted to be the one person when someone said, who had the single biggest impact on your life or career? His name dripped off people's lips before they had a moment to think about it. And living by that principle, he's, he actually does, because I mean, the number of times you hear his name in terms of who has had the biggest positive impact, it's John. And I'm curious, contribution, talk to me about that and the principles that you teach your clients in terms of making a contribution to their customers, to their staff, to their peers. There's several things jump into my mind. And thank you for your kindness, by the way. And and, and thank you for this part of the discussion. There's a couple things that leap out. One, I mean, I told you earlier that I was a kid. I wanted to be the president of the United States. I wanted to be somebody just to sit and pack the world. Okay, well, those things didn't come to fruition. And and I I lost a piece of my life, 18 years, to mediocrity. Made money, thought I was good, and realized I was mediocre. But there was a point in my Sandler journey that I remember a guy one day looking at me at the end of our like foundations program as he was going into mastery. He said, Tim, I'm better at selling, and I thank you for that. But more importantly, I want to tell you something. 
I can talk to my 14-year-old daughter a lot better. And that, that was a kind of a sacred moment for me. I mean, that was an impact that Sandler was, it was about life. It was not about being a sales guy and being, I'm the best, say, I'm a sales guru here in Indiana. There's lots of people that are sales guru, but I wanted to change life. That's why the Gestalt emphasis, that's why Sandler's psychology behind this and Brad McDonald's great book that he's just come out with on art and sale of psychology, a wonderful new book. But in the end, for me, I guess it's simple. I'm not the president of the United States and you got to dance with the one that brung you. I'm 64 years old now. You know what brung me? David Sandler, people like you, our network, my friend Bob Barber, my friend Pat McManaman, my friend Susie Andrew, they brought me. Those are the people. So I don't have much, but I have Sandler and I have the word trust and I am going to honor those. So when I think of the phrase keeper of the brand, I'm, I'm drop dead serious about that. I honor Sandler that much. I owe it. I want to give back so that we keep this wonderful thing alive. Keeper of the brand now motivates me in a real way. So my question is this. When someone is building their business and they base it on values, they attract people who share those values. And the people who don't generally won't last long. What happens when leaders don't build their business on values? Marcus, I mean, this is is a very strong question. I believe in the law of attraction. And one of the things that I'm a big about, I like to attract like-minded people. I like to attract abundance. I like to talk about and attract people who think of possibility. And here's where businesses break down. And here's where I feared that, that mine may go. And I created a no hostage policy. One of the things I see about so many companies is they are a hostage to weak negotiation skills. They're a hostage to the weak beliefs of some of their salespeople. They're a hostage to their industry and they give up their business plan. So for us, we decided a number of years ago, we would not allow hostages into our environment. We were going, we believed that we built a cop, a community of practice. We could create a culture for like-minded people who have a growth mindset instead of a fixed mindset. Carol Dweck's book, Mindset, is powerful. So when we recruit, why we do all the interviews, we're seeking growth mindsets. They are game changers in an organization. And so it is easy for us to look at somebody and say, I appreciate you have 30 people to put in our program, but we're only going to take five. We're going to take your very best five, and you don't get to decide what best five means. We do, because we're terrified of hostages. I wish business owners would have a heightened awareness to what they're hostage to, where they have to default their business plan because they're a hostage to something. 
And the sorts of people that they attract when they are hostages or are hostage to those uh, problems within their business? Scarce mentality. A scarce mentality is going to show up very quickly. You're going to attract a culture of lip service, excuse making, and blame. And you will be the chief enablement officer. And I'm not talking about sales enablement. I'm talking about sales disablement. You, as you know, we use a phrase, expect what you tolerate. But sales leaders and owners often are not listening to the codes, filters, and patterns that their salespeople have. People talk in codes, filters, and patterns. We're paid to understand what those codes, filters, and patterns are. What an interesting concept. One other subject before we need to start wrapping up, ego. I'm a big fan of Ryan Holiday's book, Ego is the Enemy. And the realization that ego, self, making you the issue will invariably create barriers will encourage the hostage mentality. How can one identify when one's ego is being hooked, when we are treading on our own toe? I journal. I do my best, and I'm pretty disciplined to it, to journal three pages a day, every day, in my as-if journal, as if it's already happening. I cannot tell you the number of times I have journaled surrender ego, countless thousands of times, ego lends to judgment. And I, Marcus, on this planet, I want my tombstone to say one thing, free of judgment. And all of that comes back to ego. Can we get a win? Can I get the right outcome for me? Heck, I know salespeople that say, if that guy would just sit there and shut up, I could sell a whole lot faster. In meetings, in interviews, I listen to attachment to self. The way to really be successful, to really flourish on the planet, and you've alluded to it several times in our conversations, subordinate ego, or even further, surrender ego. You can be much more present for others. Does that mean that you become weak and spineless and invertebrate jellyfish? No, not even remotely. There is, an as you know, an incredible amount of strength in releasing ego. There's not a day that goes by in our training sessions where we don't talk about releasing ego. The Latin root of the word vulnerable is vulnerabilis. And it means to make yourself woundable, to put yourself in harm's way and do it anyway. And it's an act of courage. And I'd like to take that a little bit further in terms of courage and mental toughness within a sales and a management context. How does one develop that courage? How does one develop that mental toughness, that resilience to be able to keep going despite things not going the way you were hoping for, despite the setbacks? Again, several thoughts. Weakness is attachment to ego. Weakness is our defense mechanism. Attachment to ego 
is a way of protecting self and often illusions. There is somebody that writes about the protective self. It's, her name is Dr. Sue Mortimer in a book called The Energy Codes. And she writes about the protective self. I think of, okay, she's correct, but I don't like the words because I think ego can often be very, very damaging. I view attachment to ego. I mean, think narcissism. If I go back in my past life and think about maybe many of my narcissistic ways, they were all born of insecurities, of defensiveness. If you ever feel attacked, if you sever out, ever say out loud, well, why did that person say this? Why did they do that? You're actually feeling attacked. Oh, that cannot be. That is ego talking. That is ego saying, well, then, since they made you feel not okay, you better make them feel more not okay. Only an indef- a defensive, insecure individual would think that. Attachment to ego is a profound weakness in my mind. Does it take courage to lose self? Yes, yes, it does. You must fail to win, said our good brother, Josh Seibert. I can't remember a time where I've learned anything of significance from my victories. I've learned bits, but it was always from having a damn good drubbing. When you, you come in bruised, broken nose, limping on a dodgy leg, and you look in the mirror and you realize it was your fault. You made, that, you made a bad decision. The reason they didn't buy, the reason that interaction went poorly is because you didn't take ownership. You allowed your ego to get hooked. And it's in those days, I mean, David Sanders' speech on courage in the No Guts, No Gain program is fascinating. Because when you realize that it's when you pick yourself up, I mean, FDR with his, it's not the critic speech about the man in the arena. That really is the defining, that's what defines us, I think. It's how we respond and the choices that we make in our darkest moments, at our moments of failure in role. That makes all the difference. But this is one of the really interesting principles within Sandler, the difference between identity and role and being able to separate the two and recognize that Bad role performance doesn't make Timmy Roberts a bad human being. It just means he screwed up in a, in a role. And that you can recover from that. But identity failure, that's something altogether different. If you start taking, judging and picking at your identity, or you allow others to get through that suit of armor and devalue how you feel about who you are, That's a major problem. And you talked about it in terms of insecurity, because I see bullies, whether they're political, whether they're managers, whether they're owners, whether they're buyers, their insecurity drives them to behave like that. And what I'm curious about is what you taught yourself to recognize when that is happening 
And I draw on one of my favorite philosophers, Bruce Lee, was asked, what's the best way to avoid a punch? And he said, be somewhere else. So how did you teach yourself to be somewhere else? Two things. I had a friend once, um, I, I wear glasses, and as she reached over, I was, I was playing victim. I was playing woe is me. And first of all, she understands the drama triangle. And um, she wasn't going to get on the triangle with me and play that game. But she reached over and she tapped on my glasses, tap, tap, tap. And she said, why do you see it that way? And that stiffened my spine a wee bit. And then she looked at me and she said, hurt is a gift. And I started thinking about that feeling hurt. Of course, when you feel hurt and woe is me, that's attachment to ego. And you just have to say, oh, no, you're not. I'm not letting you play Mr. Ego. That's not going to happen. And so then I recalled uh, many greats have said that. I think of Eckhart Tolle, he says it the most. All things are temporary. And we can't lose sight of that. When we start to make a mountain out of a molehill or play drama, we use the word problem. Listen to in people's vocabularies, their codes, filters, and problems or patterns, how often they use the word problem. Tim, I have a problem with this. I have a problem with that. People who start their comments off with, I have a problem with, have a problem in every facet of their lives. And what we challenge them to do is a problem is a gift. And so we ask them to reframe that word with this, temporary challenge. All things are temporary. They are not permanent. So when you look, when you're feeling at that worst moment, how do you go, cool, this is temporary. It's a temporary challenge. Challenge means I can overcome it. Problem means it's a burden and it's staying with me forever. Release, when you hear yourself saying the word problem, just go, oh, cool. That's Mr. Ego talking. I ain't letting him have that win. Excellent. Thank you so much. This has been enlightening and inspiring as always. I'd like to ask you this. Who are you reading at the moment? What books are you reading? I read a lot of books, as you know, and I enjoy a lot. But And therefore, I have a number of clients and friends who share books with me. One of the most recent ones I've been playing with, you know, I like to read a lot about negotiation. So I've been enjoying Negotiation Genius in particular. But the book that has really grabbed my attention, a client who actually works out of South Africa, shared with me a book about Nelson Mandela and life's meaning, the lessons of Nelson Mandela. And as I, I read through Mr. Mandela's thoughtful calm, I mean, 27 years in a prison, 27 years where he had to lead from the front and lead from the back, where he had to have the courage, knowing that he was going to be beaten, to do things that were uncomfortable. He knew it was going to hurt. To know how to say something like permission not to solve. You know what salespeople do all the time. They hear a problem and they jump. This phrase, permission not to solve, is huge. His calming influence has just cut my soul. Could you hear the passion in my voice? I'm enjoying that book. <laughs> Richard Stengel is the author. Richard Stengel followed him for a number of years. 
and I'm spacing on the exact title, but it's Life's Meaning with Nelson Mandela. Excellent. Thank you for that. I'll uh, get that today. My next question is, looking back to your 25-year-old self, what would you advise Timmy at 25 to do differently or not to do? Oh, so we're going to go on for another three hours and this becomes a therapy session. Is that what's going on here, Marcus? Just pick one. (laughs) What piece of advice would you give? Well, I've I've talked enough about losing self and that would be very important to me. For anybody I could grab, I, I would just like to say, open your mind. I wanted to believe that I knew everything. And uh, my gosh, if I could shake myself, uh, now a core value of mine is continuous learning. And that's be, you know, I I was cursed, if you will, with another gift called know-it-all. And I would like to grab uh, that 25-year-old Tim that was so full of self um, and say, no, my friend, wisdom will make you a more honorable man. When I grow up, I seek wisdom. Excellent. Tim, thank you so much. This has been enlightening, inspiring, packed full of vital content. And it's an interview that I'll listen to many times in the future. So thank you ever so much. Is there any parting word that you'd like to leave the audience today? Thank you for creating a safe space for me. That's what you do so well yourself, brother. You create safe spaces for all of us. Thank you for that gift. It's a pleasure. That's Marcus Kauke signing off with Timothy Roberts, who is, frankly, one of my favorite people on the planet. Listen to this, take notes, listen to it again, take some more notes, and apply what you learned. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye.